Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back continuing the Spoon Challenge. This is part two of our talk about spoons. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one from Tuesday of this week, you should go back and do that one first. But yeah, we're here to shove more spoons in your brain. Yeah, we have, uh, we have, we have quite a lot of cool stuff in this one as well. We got more stuff on ancient Chinese spoons. We have some Chinese poetry. We've got vampires. We've got spoon magic, a little spoon pop culture. Uh, yeah, loads of fun. So let's dive right in. Sure. So in the last episode, we talked about the spoon as an invention, a way that we might not usually think about such a a simple household object. And we talked about some of the archaeological research on the earliest spoons, like how artifacts that could be interpreted as spoons show up in rare and isolated instances back into the Paleolithic, but that after the Neolithic Revolution, when a settled existence based on farming becomes common, spoons start to proliferate in the archaeological record. And that there are some, uh, I think, very clear reasons for that. Uh, for one thing, we talked about a paper from 2019 by Stefanovic et al., arguing that many of these Neolithic bone spoons were probably used for feeding babies, and that as such, they uh, might well reflect a broader historical change in the options available for the care and feeding of young children when you had things like animal milk and cereal grains that had emerged as as foodstuffs uh, from, from, again, that Neolithic agricultural revolution. So you'd have a sort of new regime of societies based on gruel and spoon tech. And then, of course, we talked about uh, the spoons of ancient Egypt and China. And I guess uh, I wanted to pick up today with the subject of ancient spoons in China. And so one source I I looked to here was a book called Fermentations and Food Science. This is by uh, uh, Xing Sung Huang, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in the year 2000. This is part of a a series on science and civilization in China edited by Joseph Needham. I think we've referred to some of the books in the series before. Yes, his, his name rings a bell for sure. And uh, so the first passage about spoons in this book comes in the context of a question about uh, the known practice of ancient Chinese cooking that would be the parching of cooked grain. And this is a, this was a food tradition that wouldn't have been limited to ancient China. A number of cultures would serve parched grains of a certain kind. Uh, this would basically just mean like cooking the water content out of a grain that had already been cooked, perhaps by boiling or something. And so in this context, uh, Huang writes that, quote, since the ancient Chinese did not have ovens, one way to parch the grain would be to stir it in a heated pot. This stirring was probably done with a spoon or ladle called pi. The earliest reference to this instrument is found in the Shi Qing, which states, quote, messy is the stew in the pot, bent is the thornwood spoon. Now, uh, a note on that source, the, the Xi Qing is also known as the classic of poetry or sometimes the book of odes. It has a number of names. I don't know which one you're most familiar with, Rob, but uh, it's uh, I'm sure you've come across this work before. It's one of the earliest, perhaps the earliest surviving collection of Chinese poetry. It's roughly 2,500 to 3,000 years old, I believe traditionally said to have been compiled by Confucius, but I think modern scholars uh, dispute that authorship claim. 
But anyway, I, I got really curious about this line because I didn't understand what this meant. Messy is the stew in the pot. Bent is the thornwood spoon. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> so I went looking for the source to see the context, and this led me down uh, an interesting rabbit trail. I hope you're, uh, you're willing to go on a, on a digression about ancient Chinese poetry with me. Oh, always. So I found another translation. This is a, an English translation by William Jennings that appears to have been a very common early translation. And I'm sure some stuff is getting lost because it has some amount of meter and rhyme in English, which I, it, which I, I would uh, assume means that, that a good bit is getting sort of reshaped uh, meaning-wise across the languages. But it, it'll hopefully be, be at least close enough to get the gist of, of the poem. And so uh, if I have identified the right poem here, this line is from a poem that in translation is called The Neglected Eastern States. And the poem seems to be spoken by a court official living in the East who is apparently lamenting that once he had it great and he lived a life of luxury, but now he is in the East, he's in the Eastern States, and he has really hit the skids. Times are tough in the Eastern States. Uh, like one of the, the quatrains here is, Here in the East, the sons of nobles for service hard remain unpaid. There in the West, the sons of nobles are in most gorgeous just garb delayed. So the the thing being set up here is here in the East, times are tough. In the West, things are, or at least used to be really nice. And so if he were back in the West, he would have it nice, but instead he's here living tough. Right. And so this line about the spoon in the William Jennings translation here, I think it goes like this. Once supped we from well-laden trenchers and thornwood spoons bent to the loads. (laughs) So (laughs) if I'm, Interpreting that right, I think the idea is once like our stew was so rich and so awesome that it literally bent the spoons that we were trying to use to stir and eat it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just so loaded down with uh, with deliciousness that, uh, that the spoons are breaking off left and right. Okay. I've never heard a comparison like that before, but th- that's pretty good. I mean, it seems it seems like the kind of thing that you would have seen in uh, like American advertisements for like chunky soups, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, maybe we're getting a little out of it now, but it seems like for a long time that was like the, the staple, like chunky style soups uh, and advertisements for really just almost solid soups uh, mm-hmm. that it looks like you would ha- you would lose some spoons in. This was the real stew, soup currency of the 90s, I remember. Like Campbell's mm-hmm. would really emphasize in their ads back then, this is no thin, watery broth anymore. This is soup that is so thick you could like lay mortar with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, it, it was actually, I guess, a little – a little bit of like a cultural shock to me when I first started having more uh, broth-based soups mm-hmm. at some point in my life, you know, and uh, and then realized, oh well, you know, that there's a rich tradition of soups and they uh, all over the world, and they don't all have to be this thick, you know. They don't have to be like forty percent cornstarch by weight. Yeah, I don't think I've ever broke. Well, you know, I I think I have broken spoons off in in uh, like takeout fair before you know oh, i can't yeah. specifically remember it but, you know you get like a cheap spoon and you have like kind of a thick um like a, i don't know potato salad or something like that mm-hmm. you try and spoon it out you may lose a spoon in there it's true this raises a question i've never considered before but in the creation of disposable 
utensils. Uh, I guess you have a choice, you, you know, so you're making a cheap plastic spoon. Do you go more towards it bends when it reaches its, its stress limit, or do you go more towards it snaps and breaks when it reaches its stress limit? I feel like I've had some plastic spoons that managed to do both. Like it was both flimsy and brittle. In a way, it was a miracle of material sciences. Uh, like how did they, how did it fail in all categories? It might as well be spun sugar or something. Yeah. But okay. Anyway, back to this, uh, this poem from the, uh, the Xi Qing. Uh, in the end, there was one thing I thought that was pretty interesting in this poem, which is that the speaker starts looking to the constellations up in the sky, hmm. but uh, picks up again on the utensil imagery from the beginning of the poem, but referring to, to the constellations. So the last part of the poem goes like this. There in the south, the sieve is shining, yet not for sifting was it made. There in the north appears the ladle, yet ne'er a liquor will it laid. <laughs> Though southward there the sieve be shining, here points its tongue beyond the rest. Though northward there appear the ladle, it hoists its handle in the west. Hmm. Now, I really don't know exactly what to make of that, but it, it struck me as, as very curious. I, I wondered if you had thoughts on that, like... uh Obviously, I guess there are some constellations in the sky that are regularly compared to household items, particularly kitchen items. I mean, the, like the Big Dipper being right. a ladle of sorts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's where my mind goes. Not not knowing anything about the the, the origin of this or any interpretations of it. Just it seems like just a a beautiful way of saying, hey, there's a there's a big spoon in the sky, but you can't eat with it. It's right. just for looking at. <laughs> well, also the idea that uh, so even the ladle in the stars hoist its handle in the West. It's almost like, uh, oh, that is only for people of the Western states to reach yeah, down yeah. And, and ladle their sky stew with. Huh. Though I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm reading that wrong. Even the stars conspire against me and prevent me from having luxurious soups and fine robes. This really is an epic complainer poem. Well, you didn't have Yelp reviews back then. This was how you had, yeah. had to go about it. So anyway, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to come back and get some context on this poem in the future. But for now, back to the spoon. It's okay, all about the spoon. spoons. Right. Yeah, back to what Huang had to say about uh, the P here. And that's written P-I in English. But uh, 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 Huang writes that the, the P came in various sizes and shapes and were used as both cooking and serving utensils. The Li Qi records a pea used in rituals and presumably also in entertaining that was three to five feet long. Oh, wow. That sounds too long to be practical. It's like for show almost, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do find various uh, serving uh, performances in cultures around the world, so it makes sense, you know, get out of a ridiculously long uh, uh, ladle here and have somebody who has practiced it. Is, uh, it's use enough that they're not going to make a huge mess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, going on with Wong, it also mentions a different but equally long P, which is a two-pronged fork. It was so named because its shape is similar to that of the constellation P, now identified as Epsilon Tauri. Hmm. Uh, so this is interesting again because this comes back to uh, comparing the kitchen utensils to constellations in the poem. Yeah, yeah, this is interesting. Now, I don't know if this repeated association between constellations and cooking utensils is just a total coincidence based on what I happen to be reading here or if there's something significant about that. But anyway, uh, reading further in fermentations and food science, um, 
Huang goes on to say later that uh, ancient Chinese texts speak, of course, of this long spoon, pi, which is which is an instrument to stir food while it's being cooked in a pot. But there's also apparently a small pi, which Huang writes, quote, would be the equivalent of the modern spoon, which is used universally for conveying soup from a container, a cauldron or bowl, into one's mouth. But then you've also got this other thing uh, thing that's a, a type of ladle called a shuo, and this is for distributing liquid like broth or wine from a large pot into a smaller bowl. Now, Huang goes on to catalog different types of spoons that appear in uh, you know different periods in Chinese history, uh, made out of different materials, different average lengths and stuff like that. One of the interesting ideas raised, and I think this connects to – sort of connects to some things we've already talked about – was that early bronze spoons in ancient China appear to have had a sharp point, and this may have been used to cut meat. So I could imagine maybe if you have like, uh, I don't know exactly that this would be the use case, but if you had, say, chunks of meat floating around in a soup or a stew, you could use the spoon to uh, lift the, the soup or the stew into the mouth, but also maybe like press a piece of meat against the side of the bowl and cut it with the sharp point. Hmm. Yeah, this is interesting, though. It, it does raise the the question, like, why would it be necessary to sharpen it? Because as we all know, using metal spoons in our life, uh, we can cut with the spoon, even if it's not sharpened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, you can certainly apply some pressure and use it, uh, you know, certainly on things like stewed meats, stewed vegetables, you know, things that are not uh, too tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I, I guess the, the idea of a, of the spoon being sharpened in some way makes me feel a little nervous, a little anxious, you know, yeah. uh, like I can just imagine things going wrong. I don't, I don't want any sharpened spoons in my life. Well, your logic there may have been the one that won out in uh, historical spoon design in ancient China, because Huang also says that the spoons tend to start taking a rounder form in the spring and autumn period. And then by the time of the warring States period, uh, you, you got these like lacquered wooden spoons that uh, start Mm. to become the dominant format. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could see it being a trend for a little bit and then people backing away from it. Like, Mm. like, essentially there could have been a campaign, right? Are you tired of this happening to you? And, you know, and imagine like the ad of somebody trying to cut meat with their spoon and it's just not working. They cut their tongue off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that would be the, the, the follow-up, right? Are you, are you tired of cutting your tongue off with your sharpened uh-huh. spoon? But before that, it would be like, are you tired of having chunks of meat that just cannot be cut in half with your spoon? Try the sharpened spoon. Blood's running down your chin. There's got to be a better way. <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, uh, very briefly, uh, a, a spin on this in a bit. I, I guess one thing that we're trying to drive home in these examples is that uh, something like the spoon, an invention like the spoon, has, as every day as it is, you know, it is, it is so close to our lives that we often forget about it, but it's also so close to our lives that it is susceptible to cultural pressure and uh, in, in various design trends. So even though the spoon, you might think, well, the spoon never changes, but of course the spoon does change. And I ran across a wonderful example of this, uh, uh, one interesting uh, tidbit from the history of spoons as related by B. Wilson in What Your Spoon Says About You from the Atlantic. And it concerns one small corner of the world during a particular stretch of time, England in the 17th century. Uh, Okay, so this would have been the time uh, during and after the English Civil War. Right. So, yeah, at at this point, I'll set the setting here, the monarchy had been disposed of and Oliver Cromwell had risen to power. 
Now, the resulting Commonwealth rule didn't last very long. Um, like Cromwell uh, ruled from 1653 until his death in 1658. And at that point, it pretty much collapsed under his son's leadership the following year. So that's not really a long time to, to bust out a lot of spoons under your rule. Uh, but there are some interesting changes that took place. So before Cromwell rose to power, uh, you saw a lot of these silver, proper British spoons that had fig-shaped bowls and uh, what uh, Wilson describes as chunky hexagonal stems. Uh, they also describe it as having a bowl like a teardrop, quote, widening toward the end that you put in your mouth. Uh, they tended to have decorative knops at the top. Knops were artistic flourishes uh, that often featured things like humanoid forms, uh, ladies, animals, that sort of thing. But then, again, Cromwell comes to power, and under Cromwell's strict Puritan regime, this sort of spoon was no longer favored all of a sudden. So you see the rise of Puritan spoons, which were, quote, simple, shallow, egg-shaped spoons with flat stems and no decoration, no knops. Uh, and, and you could generally see this as part of, like, the Puritan impulse against representative art, right? Right, yeah. Now, B. Wilson has a wonderful little passage. I want to read this. Uh, they write, Quote, none of these decorative spoons found favor during the Commonwealth when, when excessive decoration of any kind, particularly religious, was disapproved of. The round heads lopped uh, the heads off spoons just as they lopped off the king's head. It's uh, <laughs> a nice comparison there. Uh, that would be referring to, to Charles I, who was yes. beheaded at the, uh, after losing the English Civil War. So anyway, these Puritan spoons, suddenly uh, they are the trend. Uh, but they were, they, weren't, uh, they were not only plain, they were also hefty. They were big hunks of silver. Uh, and it's thought that this was a way for people uh, to hoard their silver. Mm -hmm. That way, when the local government came calling, which, which they apparently would do, and say, hey, we need all your extra silver to pay for the town's defense. Well, you can say, ooh, the only silver I have are these silver utensils, and I need those to eat. Uh, so, sorry, uh, I'm going to hang on to these. So, it was a way of having essential use silver in your house. Do I just making sure that all of your silver was a part of your uh, your eating utensils? Now, this is very interesting because it makes me wonder if this is antecedent to or like somehow connected to this tradition I never really understood, but was still around in American families when I was growing up that like as a wedding present, people would be would be given an expensive set of silver, like the family silver, you know, di mm -hmm. special dining ware. But as far as I understood it, this was never to be used. It was just to, like a, it was like the most expensive stuff that you have in your house. So you just keep it in a drawer. Yeah, you keep it stuck away and maybe you, you get it out to uh, to polish it and care for it. And occasionally maybe you eat with it, but certainly not not all the time. Now, uh, again, the Commonwealth fell eventually, and then uh, came the Restoration. And as Charles II returns from exile, he brings with him a new spoon style. And as Wilson points out, the shift here was sudden. The triffid spoon takes over, a deep oval bowl spoon with a flat handle and a distinctive cleft shape at the end. Hmm. Wilson writes, quote, no British person had ever eaten from such a spoon before in Britain. The first Triffids are hallmarked 1660. Yet by 1680, they had spread through the entirety of Charles's kingdom and remained the dominant spoon type for 40 years, killing off both the Puritan spoon and the fig-shaped spoons that went before. And, and the, the, their designs, apparently, you know, it wasn't just about how 
uh, they hold soup and gruel in this case. Uh, you know, it's also about how you hold the spoon. I think we touched on this before. Like the the way a spoon is designed not only has an influence on how you eat, it also influences how you're going to interact with the spoon with your hand, how you're going to hold it. So the the trifid here could be held regally uh, in uh, in a polite, uh, you know, thoroughly English way. Uh, so that also appears to be part of it. You know, it's like th- there's a new rule. There are new um, uh, you know, a restored rule. Uh, there, there are new, uh, you know, new, new ideas. We're going, kind of going against the Puritan uh, concepts of how we should uh, interact with our food, and so the the, the trifid here is uh, is is in is in fashion, uh, and it's going to uh, have an influence on the way we we consume uh, our soup or what have you. I didn't think to look this up ahead of time, but I realize now there's got to be a John Dryden poem about trifid spoons. <laughs> Doesn't that just seem perfect? Yeah, I mean, especially if it was, you know, this big of a deal, a, a sweeping change. Oh, well, a quick Google search does not reveal anything. Hmm. All right, the next spoon I'd like to talk about is uh, is is, uh, is something from Mesoamerican history. Uh, so here's the thing. Spoons can, of course, be decorative, and we find an interesting decorative spoon in the ritual spoon pendants of the Olmec peoples. This was the earliest known major Mesoamerican civilization. And if you visit the Met in New York City, uh, you may be able to see one of these. I know they have uh, them in their collection um, made from some, somewhere between the 10th and 4th century BCE. I included a picture here for you to, to look at, Joe, so you can see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You, if you just, you know, look, if you look one up and you didn't know what you're looking at, you might be forgiven for not recognizing this as a spoon. No, so it's got a spoon-like depression in it, but if you were to flip it on its side, it almost looks kind of like a submarine. It's like a long cigar shape, and then it's got a big bulge, sort of cylindrical bulge in one section. Yeah, yeah. It um I see it often described as as a T-shaped pendant, but it it also looks to me like a like a P, like a, a like like a big P with an extra stem on top. Mm-hmm. Um and there is a there is a bowl area, but it's it's rather shallow. Uh, so, in particular, with the, the Olmec uh, spoon pendants, these uh, jade T-shaped pendants are thought to have been used for ceremonial hallucinogenic consumption. Mm. And similar T-shaped pendants from the later Maya culture apparently signified the sacred breath. I was uh, looking around for more information on these, and I ran across a November 2020 paper from Andrew D. Turner, published in Ancient Mesoamerica. And the author here discusses uh, uh, an interesting possibility, and that is uh, that these uh, spoons, with their what to our eyes look like a strange shape, they might uh, be based off the basic shape of the iridescent shells of wing oysters. And if you look up a wing oyster, they do have this kind of P shape. So again, going back to what we talked about in the in the first episode about the idea of shells being something that uh, ancient peoples would have used as spoons before the creation of spoons. And then in the creation of spoons, you know, affixing a, a shell to a stick, that sort of thing. Uh, isn't it interesting that we we potentially see an example here of then actual invented spoons, actual artifacts mimicking uh, directly than the the natural shape of this shell that is no longer being used. Well, if there was a long running tradition of using natural, you know, nature facts, objects found in nature, like the shells of oysters as spoons before you had a, a manufactory of artificial spoons, 
I can imagine that a spoon used in a specific religious or ritual context might be the one that you would most want to keep like the old school spoon, you know, because when you get into the religious or or ritual mindset, we're often trying to recreate uh, uh, scenes of the past or our imagination of scenes of the past. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, and then, of course, throw into that as well the idea of the of the the instrument or the invention becoming a symbol and just be, becoming because uh, that's also what we see going on here potentially with these pendants as is even if they're no longer being used to consume uh, a particular substance, they become symbolic of um, of that that magical ritual or some sort of idea caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Now, from here, this raises a, a question uh, for me. I was thinking, well, okay, now we've talked about spoons and their interaction with sacred affairs and political affairs, um, but how about mythology and folklore? Well, given the place that the spoon holds in, in human lives back through ancient times, it shouldn't be surprising that it does occasionally become imbued with mythic and magical properties. For starters, the figure of the witch or um, or any kind of uh, magical um, female presence is often associated with household items that take on magical properties. So the broom is a prime example of this in various um, you know tales of witches. We have the Baba Yaga's uh, mortar and pestle that she uses to fly through the sky. Uh, so you better believe there are some magical spoons out there as well. And I have just a few examples of these. Oh, boy. So according to Spoon, Woman, and Soul, the folk belief in a Japanese spoon by Wang, published in the Journal of Dalian University, the spoon may take on magical associations in Japanese folk belief associated with, quote, mountains, females, souls with a supernatural magical power of birth, praying for peace, being healthy, and exorcism, etc., I was also reading an article by Gabby Thompson of Volgamuth uh, about East German translations of fairy tales. And this was this was fascinating. This is kind of a tangent, but it's worth it. Um, the author points out that early East German versions of the Brothers Grimm's fairy tales, they'd been very popular during the Third Reich. So great care was taken in translating them anew uh, so, the, so as to stress values considered important and remove those again, for East uh, German readers that they deemed, uh, quote, harmful to a socialist education and hence uh, modified. Hmm. So here's an example. In the original Grimm's uh, uh, tales ending of Rumpelstiltskin, the bested imp becomes so irate that he stomps his foot down so hard that his entire leg becomes stuck in the ground. And then he's even more enraged. He pushes down with both hands to to free himself from the earth and in doing so uh, rips his body in half. <laughs> okay. So just a really gory, just uh, Mortal Kombat type ending to Rumpelstiltskin. Uh-huh. But this would not do in the early East German translations, uh, and, and they, they cite a couple of them. I think it's uh, Politschek and, uh, and uh, Kosolek, and it, it ends up having this very, I think, kind of a poochy ending to, to reference uh, The Simpsons. Uh, instead of having Rumpelstiltskin stomping and ripping his body in half, instead, quote, and he flew out uh, of the window on a wooden spoon, and then that's uh, the end. Yep. Is that the first mention of the wooden spoon? Um. I know I'm not sure on that, but possibly, yes. They just throw it in there like, oh, yeah, by the way, he had a wooden spoon and uh, it's magic and he flew away and nobody was ripped in half by their own uh, anger. My home planet needs me. Yeah. Rumpelstiltskin died on the way back to his home planet. 
Um, and by the way, that's also the name of the paper. And he flew out of the window on a wooden spoon. Uh, so if you want to look it up, look that up. It's, it's worth it. It's a, it's a fascinating topic. Um, and and there are other examples of sanitized endings, uh, such such as uh, there's the tale of the two brothers, which in the Grimm's version ends with them burning a witch alive in a fire. But one of the sanitized versions uh, ends with, quote, the poison grew in her heart so much that she exploded. And in the other one, they hit her with a magic wand and just turned her to stone. Um, so it's interesting how these edits take place. I mean, these are very much like the... Um, the sanitized uh, Nintendo fatalities that we've t- discussed in the show before. All right, but back to spoons. Okay, more, more magical spoons. Apparently in Albania, there is a mushroom known as the witch's spoon because it is said to grow where a witch vomits. <laughs> Good to know. Okay. I'm guessing, I did not really research this any further. It was actually the full paper was behind a paywall, uh, mm-hmm. so I wasn't able to, 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 to get at it. Uh, but I'm, I'm guessing this is not a good mushroom. This is not a mushroom you want to eat. <laughs> what makes you think that? <laughs> I mean, if witches are vomiting it up, uh, I, I, I don't think we want to uh, go after it. But witches um, are bad, so maybe what they vomit up is good. Okay, maybe. Um, but don't do it on our account. Uh, uh, let's see. There are various folk magic practices that involve the use of spoons. The, the spoon is basically some sort of a magical focus or something. Um, I ran across a Macedonian practice in which slips of paper with writing on them are burnt over a person's body in the bowl of a spoon. Mm. Now, uh, you might remember, any of you who are listening to our Weird House Cinema episodes, you might remember uh, in our Santo, in the Treasure of, of Dracula episode, you might remember a book I brought up, Paul Barber's Vampires, Burial, and Death. And uh, it, I was looking in that book again. I may have to get a physical copy of this because uh, they cover a late 19th century Prussian practice against vampires in, that involved placing a bowl of cold water under the board on which a body, a dead body, is lying and placing a multitude of tin spoons on top of the body in order to prevent the dead from returning to unnatural life. And Barber notes that the, the spoon tradition here is interesting because there are some other traditions uh, from, from that region uh, that uh, call for sharp objects like knives or even thorns to be placed on top of the body uh, to keep it from uh, rising again. But in this case, it's just a bunch of tin spoons. With elaborate arrangements like this and the sort of general physical recipes for magic, I mean, this is the kind of thing that always makes me wonder, where does this come from? Is this derived from a series of past observations or practices that have been estranged from their original context over time or or just accumulated more details over time? Or did, at some point, did somebody just like get a vision and make this up? I don't know. I think, think the obvious case here is that, is, of course, as a body is, lays out there, it is uh, potentially going to swell, mm-hmm. and in doing so, or or there's going to be some disturbance within as the you know as, as decomposition begins to take hold that could cause spoons placed delicately on the body to fall from that body and clatter on the floor, thus alerting you that something is happening. Mm-hmm. But then, who knows what other mystical uh, attachments are involved there as well? You know, concerning metal and uh, you know just all these various um, magical ideas that might be imbued in the just the idea of a spoon or the idea of a knife. Mm-hmm. Now, Rob, you've also sent me a picture of the surface of Mars for this episode. I wonder yes. what game are you at here? 
Yes, this is a, a 2016 photo, and uh, uh, you listening out there, you can look it up as well. It was taken by NASA's Curiosity rover, and it shows a formation on the surface of Mars that does look like a spoon. Uh, you know, you, you look at it, and yeah, it looks like a spoon. For, for some reason, someone has disposed of a spoon on the surface of Mars, raising all sorts of questions. Uh, I mean, I think the obvious reason would be there's nothing to eat on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what are you even going to use that for? I mean, unless you catch that rat, the Curiosity <laughs> rover also saw, and then you make a stew. But I don't know how you'd make a stew because it'd be hard to gather enough water. I guess you'd have, really have to, you know, get a lot of that frost out of the sand. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the spoon would be for the face on Mars so that it can eat soup. Uh, uh. So, yeah, the face on Mars is more popular uh, and, and certainly attracts more conspiracy thinking. Uh, but the spoon is also impressive. But just like the face, this is just a trick of the shadows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, it's a trick of the shadows on a uh, ventifact. That's a, a rock shaped by wind. So basically you have just a, 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 a the this, this strange rock formation that is photographed in just such a way that the shadows make it look like a spoon. Mm-hmm. So look it up. It's, it's, it's amusing. Okay, secondary use. Wait a minute. No, the spoon is to be placed on top of the face on Mars to make sure that the face doesn't move. That's true. Maybe that is what the that was the real purpose of this mission. Bring a spoon to Mars, place it atop the face so that we can keep tabs on it. All right. Um you know, we're we're reaching the end here, but I did want to touch touch base uh regarding some uh just some I guess spoon pop culture uh notes here. Um <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen this, Joe, but there is a there is a wonderful video, the horribly slow murder with the extremely inefficient weapon. I have not seen it. I'm opening it now. Well, um, it, it's 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 long enough that you you probably want to watch it later. But basically, a um, a person is pursued by someone with a spoon, and they are hitting them with the spoon, attempting to kill them. But it ends up taking a long time. It's an extremely inefficient weapon, and so it takes the murderer the entirety of both their lives to pull it off. Okay, this looks very good. Chaotic Rampage American Pictures presents. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's some fun, some fun viewing for later on. Uh, now, just talk of killing somebody with a spoon, or certainly cutting out their heart with a spoon. This brings to mind Robin Hood's Prince of Thieves. You might remember the exchange between uh, the guy at Gisborne and uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham, uh, in part because you had two tremendous actors there. You had Alan Rickman and Michael Wincott uh, in those roles, uh, respectively. Mm-hmm. And the discussion is about why you would use a spoon to kill someone. Uh, yeah. Michael Wincott's character does not quite understand that. Yeah, he's like, a, a, a spoon? Why not an axe? And, of course, uh, Alan Rickman's uh, Sheriff of Nottingham says, because it's dull, you twit, it'll hurt more. Uh, so uh, fun fun roles in that film. Uh, the bad guys were a lot of fun in that. Um Let's see. Uh, worth noting that the, the Tick's battle cry was Spoon. Uh, in the Dark Tower series, the Crimson King, in his original mortal form, kills himself by swallowing a sharpened spoon, which seems to be part of a magical transformation that allows him to become this immortal being with godlike powers. Uh, and, of course, this raises the question, uh, how, about, how about the spoon as an actual murder weapon? Are there any uh, accounts of this? Well, uh, there's a Bustle article about it by Sage Young, published in 2015. And at least a couple of cases of spoons as weapons and even murder weapons have emerged. In 2004, a man in the UK was acquitted of murder after he struck another man in the back of the head with a dessert spoon. Oh, no. And in 2014, a Florida man was executed. Uh, he'd been on death row, and one of his crimes was killing a prison guard with a sharpened spoon. Uh, I don't think that 
completely counts because this was not sharpened for culinary purposes, but it was, of course, sharpened in order to make a makeshift uh, murder weapon, a makeshift knife. Yeah. But still, it goes to show that, yes, you, you can kill someone with a spoon. I don't know if you can cut their heart out, uh, but it, it, you can certainly end someone's life. Now, Rob, a number of listeners over the uh, years, I believe, have asked us to cover the spork, especially we, we got this request several times on Invention, and I don't think we ever took anyone up on it. No, and uh, you know, honestly, I want to I want to keep it that way. Uh, I think that um, we should do our part to uh, erase the spork from history. Uh, I think we should declare it forbidden technology mm-hmm. that that serves no purpose. Um, like, have you ever used a spork and or been forced to use a spork and said, "This is this is great. Can I get some of these for my house? Can I get can I get metal f- sporks that I can use?" Like, it no, nobody does that. I'm anti-spork. Have you ever? Did you ever have a pocket knife that had a spork in it? I don't think I did. I never had one of those really thick uh, Boy Scout knives with all the with all the extra things in them. Um, oh, so you've I, never used a metal spork? I would say a metal spork is more defensible than the plastic spork, which is barely distinct. Which is, I mean, pretty much the same as a plastic spoon. Yeah. Um, I, I now I do. We do have a couple of, of plastic. Uh, implements that we sometimes refer to as spoonaforks and it is a it is a fork on one side and one of the edge blades uh one of the edge prongs of the fork uh has is uh, is basically a butter knife and then on the other end you have a spoon so that i like like the spoon remains pure and we can combine the fork and the knife into one implement and we just have to switch back and forth i think that's called a sporf a sporf. I've okay. seen the word at least. Okay. Well, I would. I'm. I'm marginally pro sporf, but I'm still anti spork. Well, maybe we should let the listeners go, and then we can further discuss your the ethics of your holy war against the spork. Okay. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some compelling arguments out there for sporks that I'm not aware of, um, but uh, I frankly doubt it. Somehow I feel that a plastic spork is the only uh, utensil appropriate for the eating of the Texas specialty, the Frito pie served in the Frito's bag, despite the fact that there's nothing in a Frito pie that requires the tines to pierce it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, that does sound plausible. Um, I, I remember having those in, um, uh, as part of a school lunch at one point uh, mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Um, where they would just take the Frito bag and they would, yep. it's just like a lump of, of meat that they mm-hmm. drop in there. Yeah, nothing feels better in your hand than just like holding a bag with something warm inside it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, you know, I think it's it's time for us to wrap this one up. We're going to go ahead and close the case on uh, this fine assortment of spoons. We're going to uh, take that case and we're going to we're going to store it away, and we're not going to get it out again until there's a special occasion. Uh, but in the meantime, if you have some thoughts on spoons, the invention of spoons, the use of spoons, we would we would really love to hear from you. Like especially if it's something you know regional, something cultural, something that's important to to you or your family that's been passed down. Some uh, some tidbit about the history of spoons that we missed here. Your thoughts, even on sporks, uh, we will we will entertain them. Um, and also, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, core episodes published in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, usually, we publish uh, Artifact on Wednesdays, Listener Mail on Mondays, and Fridays we do Weird House Cinema episodes and a Vault episode, a rerun on the weekends. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.